To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Inflation may not be slowing down America's shopping habits, but it certainly makes for a good excuse when those bills come due. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Washington, D.C., I'm Kimberly Adams in for Kai Rizdahl. It's Tuesday, December 26th. Good to have you with us. Despite concerns inflation might cause consumers to pull back on spending this holiday season, early numbers out show that... Dear listener, we did not. Preliminary data from MasterCard shows retail sales were up more than 3% from November 1st to Christmas Eve, with a bigger increase in online sales compared to in-store purchases. But now that the Christmas gift-giving is mostly done, be honest. Did you go a bit over budget for your holiday shopping? Go ahead. Blame it on the higher prices. Inflation. And it's true. There are lots of numbers out there to tell you the toys and ties you bought this year are more expensive than last year's. But prices are rising more slowly. And with inflation getting closer and closer to the Fed's 2% target, it's getting harder and harder for consumers and businesses to invoke it as an excuse anymore. Marketplace's Matt Levin is on the financial rationalization beat today. Rice University marketing professor Utpal Dalakia recently bought a new Toyota Prius. It was about 20% more than the Prius he bought a few years back, but he put a lot more effort into that transaction. I would really do the research. I would find the best price. I would negotiate. This time around, Dalakia knew cars had gotten really expensive over the past three years, so he says he just kind of accepted the higher price point. He says inflation makes us more tolerant to higher prices and more tolerant to the fact that I'm not going to get a good deal. Of course, just how tolerant you are to higher prices depends a lot on how much money you make. Andy Manthai at the nonprofit Greenpath Financial Wellness works with low-income clients to develop responsible budgets. He says when dealing with the stress of higher food and gas prices, letting go of items like streaming services or lattes can actually be harder when prices are rising. In some ways, our brain kind of says, well, I need these endorphins and I need some of this feel good stuff. So I'm going to go and get a Starbucks coffee because it makes me feel normal. Marketing departments are well aware of this kind of consumer inflation resignation, says Ted Klontz at Creighton University. I don't see inflation really in terms of a tool being any different than a two for one or expires tonight kind of sale. 
But with inflation coming back down, businesses can't keep hiking prices and blaming macroeconomic forces beyond their control, right? Again, Rice University's Utpal Delakia. You're not going to see any dramatic changes in the pricing strategies of companies, even with consumer outrage. Well, if they're not going to stop using inflation as an excuse, I'm not going to stop either. That gym membership I was going to buy to get in shape next year? Forget it. Way too expensive. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Wall Street today. Traders came back from the holiday ready to do some shopping themselves. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Like Matt just mentioned at the beginning of his story, one of the big drivers of inflation over the last few years was the rising cost of new and used cars. Prices for all kinds of vehicles spiked the initial year out of the COVID lockdowns, driven by high demand from consumers with extra money to spend and low supply worsened by the chip shortage. But 2023 was the year the car market finally started to level out again. Now, dealer lots are more full and prices are no longer climbing at a breakneck pace. Many folks who watch the car industry predict this trend will continue in 2024 and think next year could even be kind of boring in the car market. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. Something in the car market pretty much disappeared the last few years, says Patrick Olson, editor-in-chief at Carfax. In the before inflation times, there was a fair number of 0% interest offers. Zero money down, cashback rebates, you've heard the ads, but dealers haven't needed those in a while. They've enjoyed, you know, in the last two, three years, record high margins on new vehicles because of the chip shortage um, and COVID supply lines. Cars were scarce, so dealerships could raise prices and car buyers had to take what they could get. That's finally changing, says Sam Fiorani, vice president of global vehicle forecasting at Auto Forecast Solutions. Manufacturers have found better supply of of semiconductors, uh, better supply of, of general parts. That's led to more cars and trucks rolling off assembly lines, higher inventory on dealership lots, and stronger competition between dealerships. For car buyers, we're getting back to the level where a consumer can walk into a dealership and pick out a vehicle, negotiate a price, take a, uh, $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 off the price, and drive away that day. Still, making a car isn't getting any cheaper. The cost of parts and labor will likely stay high next year. And Mark Shermer with Cox Automotive says for manufacturers and dealers, that means... Margin compression. As in profit margins. Dealers will still be able to stay in business and certainly be profitable. They just won't be as profitable as they were in 2021 and 2022. So in a lot of ways, the car market next year could look a lot like it did before 2020, which is to say, pretty normal. Unless, says Sam Fiorani at Auto Forecast Solutions. If uh, any part of the, the supply chain broke, then suddenly there's no production or less production. That would throw this whole thing into a tailspin again. So maybe grab that discount while you can. I'm Henry App for Marketplace.
Today, a decent chunk of parents in this country are still sorting through the chaos of Christmas morning. The wrapping paper, the boxes, the toys somehow already missing pieces, and the question, where are we going to put all this stuff? Caitlin Gibson is a feature writer at the Washington Post, and she recently wrote about how kids in America seem to have so much stuff these days and how that's affecting parents. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what is the toy situation in your home like right now? Oh, um, it is getting better, but it's it's mildly out of control. Um, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, so... There are, oh gosh, yes, there's Legos everywhere, there's stuffed animals everywhere, there's everything everywhere. There's there's a lot of things everywhere in my house. <laughs> Writing this piece about your kids having too many toys, can you talk about sort of the journey that you went through as you were writing this? Well, this story came up because it's a conversation that I've had with so many parents. I mean, as I'm doing my reporting, I'm speaking with families all the time. Of course, I'm moving in, in parenting circles in my own life as well. And particularly with the holidays coming up, something that I was hearing over and over again from parents was this kind of anxiety about just the sheer volume of things that have accumulated in their home. And then knowing that even more is coming uh, with the holidays with the holidays coming up. So uh, what I wanted to do was just talk to different parents and kind of get a sense of how is this happening? Why is this happening? How, what does it feel like to have to navigate this? And what are some ways that we might be able to kind of get this a little bit more under control? Another piece that came out around the same time as yours, this one from Business Insider, argues that one of the reasons parents these days give kids so many toys to keep them occupied is basically that toys are cheaper than childcare. What do you think of that? I think that is absolutely true and a really important point to make. It's one thing to say, oh, it would be better to kind of give experiences or to do something with your kid. Well, you know, in our modern reality, a lot of parents don't have time, don't have the money to take their child somewhere or do something. And then the same for the same price, you know, the cost of toys has dropped to a level where it is easier to just buy them something to keep them occupied. And I, I think that's really real. I also think the pandemic exacerbated that. I mean, mm. speaking even just for myself, you know, I was at home with little kids. I couldn't safely take them anywhere. In the beginning, I had a newborn and a toddler. And I think a lot of parents I've spoken to have echoed that same thing, that a lot, even more stuff started kind of flooding in during that window of time when when going places wasn't really an option. So what's the tally now? How are you doing at controlling the toys in your house? Are you even trying to anymore? I am. I am pleased to tell you that I brought in a giant box of about 35 stuffed animals just yesterday to give to a colleague who is collecting for refugee families. So at least I'm down 35. You know, I probably still have 135 to go in my house, but um, we're, <laughs> we're working on it. How did writing this article change your overall approach in, in terms of how you think about the things your kids have and, and might get in the future? Well, it was it was good to be reminded that there are things we can do to kind of 
to minimize the impact of this and that it is okay to be openly communicative with the people in your life. You know, I live in a small house. We don't have endless space and it's okay to convey that to people. It was kind of affirming to have other parents and to have, um, you know, the professional organizers saying that too. Like it's actually good to let people know that, you know, if they're thinking of getting you something bigger, they need to check in with you about that. Uh, and it also made me I was listening to what she was saying about including your children in this work of purging. And so when I went through that box of 35 stuffed animals I was just telling you about, I did sit down with my five-year-old daughter and she helped me do that. And and that was really kind of nice to talk to her about why it's important to let things go and how there are other people who might, you know, really need and use those things in a way that we're not needing and using those things anymore. So I think just being more mindful about what's coming in and the way that we're letting things go, those were kind of my main takeaways from working on this. Caitlin Gibson is a feature writer at The Washington Post. Her new article, Our Kids Have Too Much Stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Coming up, I feel like it should have been more intimidating than it felt at the time. Be careful what you wish for, right? But first, let's do the numbers. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 159 points, four tenths percent, to land at 37,545. The Nasdaq grew 81 points, a half a percent, to end at 15,074, and the S&P 500 picked up 20 points, four tenths percent, to close at 4774. In Britain and many of its former colonies, today, December 26th, is Boxing Day. Traditionally, the day after Christmas is when tradespeople or employees would receive a Christmas box containing a present from their customers or employers. Nowadays, it's a time when many people focus on upcoming retail sales or returning gifts they don't want. Parcel delivery service FedEx added one and six tenths percent as it announced a stock buyback worth a billion dollars. UPS slipped a tenth of a percent. German delivery firm DHL was up half a percent. Bond prices rose. The yield on the 10-year T-note fell to 3.89 percent. And you are listening to Marketplace. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's Dell.com deals. This is Marketplace. I'm Kimberly Adams. If you want to build something in this country, ships, cars, buildings, appliances, you're probably going to need steel. And one of the main ingredients needed to make steel is iron ore. So it matters that the price of iron ore is up nearly 39% over the past year, according to data from the International Monetary Fund. It's still well below the all-time high it hit in the summer of 2021, but we asked Marketplace's Lily Jamali to look into why this commodity has been getting more expensive and what impact that might have. 
70% of global demand for iron ore comes from one place, China. And until recently, the economy wasn't looking so good, according to Rohan Reddy of GlobalX ETFs. There was just a lot of negativity towards the Chinese economy and just how China was trending. Exhibit A, China's crisis-ridden property market, which once demanded a lot of steel. Lately, though, China's government has made aggressive moves to stimulate its economy. They've had like three rate cuts this year already. And so that's been helpful, I think, in balancing some of the fears about China. Beijing also told its steelmakers this year it wouldn't enforce an annual cap on production aimed at curbing carbon emissions. Iron ore supply has not kept up with the resulting demand. The University of Houston's Craig Pierong says iron ore prices will affect steel made from scratch, but... The importance of steel as a major price or cost driver in the United States is relatively modest. That's because here, most new steel is actually recycled from old steel. So it would have some impact on prices uh, of goods generally in the United States, but not a huge one. Pierong says the rally in iron ore prices seems driven more by speculation than reality. Basically, the same period of time that the iron ore market has been going up, the Chinese stock market has been going down. China is dealing with stubbornly high unemployment and shrinking factory activity. And Duke's Campbell Harvey says its commercial real estate market remains in disarray. They have overbuilt. They have ghost cities. And it's really hard to see China returning to the robust growth that they've experienced over the last 10 years. Harvey says investors who've been helping drive iron ore futures higher might be seeing not what's there, but rather what they want to see. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. For those fortunate to spend this time of year with family, it can often be a mix of fun and fraught. But that's family, right? This week, we're bringing you stories of family-run businesses, starting with one family of distillers who know how to drink together and work together. I'm Amber Pollock. I'm Mallory Pollock. And we live in Casper, Wyoming. We got married in 2015. And together with my family, we started Backwards Distilling Company in 2014. The origin of the company really began, I think, with the backdrop of the 2008 financial crisis and my mom feeling a lot of angst about, you know, that kind of being the world that my brother and I were entering into as adults ready to find jobs and careers. And there was this like a romantic ideal about being in control of your own destiny in the face of sort of uncertain financial times. This is Mallory, and I have a background of finance, and I brought that to the table, uh, but quickly was finding myself behind the bar. So it was shaking cocktails on a Friday night, and if it was slow enough, I'd run upstairs to my desk and, you know, write checks and Uh, check accounts and so it was anything and everything like all hands on deck. I feel like it should have been more intimidating than it felt at the time. Looking back I was like you should have been way more scared than you were. 
any sort of nerves initially were overshadowed by the excitement and just being able to kind of bring this whole vision into focus. So um, I think that the intimidation set in later. <laughs> once, it, once it was like, okay, we're, we're going, we're in this, now what, you know? In terms of the bottom line, definitely not uh, to the point where I could say we're raking it in, but I do feel optimistic that we have kind of stabilized in being consistently at least somewhat profitable, which took a long time to get to. I think we're getting smarter, we're learning, we're getting more efficient and making less mistakes. You know, I, I feel like over the last couple of years, we've gotten in a position where we're seeing growth little by little over and above that sort of break-even mark. Working with my in-laws, so Amber's parents, um, it's kind of funny because I've never known them outside of the business. I moved up here and it was like they were already just past the starting line of getting this business going. And so, you know, you go to those family dinners, we go out and we're always talking business. Yeah, finding the balance between business and family has been an evolution over the years. I think early on, managing the relationships between like how to be a sister and a daughter versus business partner, that is tricky. And, um, you know, certain times that goes well and certain times it doesn't go as well. It is pretty funny to like text boss slash father-in-law like, hey, can you check on this account for me? Also, can you feed my dog on your way home tonight? <laughs> so it, it somehow works all around. Amber and Mallory Pollock, Backwards Distilling Company out in Casper, Wyoming. We'll have more of these family-run business My Economies this week, but we can't do this series without you. Let us know what's going on in your world, marketplace.org slash myeconomy. More and more consumers are trying to shop sustainably, and companies are happy to market their products as such. But it can be hard to compare how environmentally friendly, say, different food and drink products are when you look at the packaging. Here in the U.S., there are at least 65 different eco-labels promising to guarantee some element of sustainability. But in Europe, there are hundreds. Consumers are increasingly asking how sustainable the produce they're buying is. So the European Union is trying to find a simpler grading system. The BBC's Leanna Byrne reports. On an Irish clifftop looking out at the North Atlantic Sea, sits an award-winning restaurant, Smuggler's Creek, where head chef Declan Smith prides himself on the fresh and sustainable produce on the menu. So he wants food to be clearly labelled. Just keep it simple. Make it non-dependent on language. Numerical or colourful. He says standardising the labelling of produce across the European Union would help his staff. It would be consistent for them to see and also it would help in scoring recipes in general. Some eco-labels are reputable, others are simply used to boost sales. An official European Union report found 40% of green claims made by companies were completely unsubstantiated. 
Emma Calvert, a senior food policy officer at the European Consumer Organization in Brussels, says many labels are scientifically inaccurate. They're usually underpinned by dubious carbon offsetting measures and they can really mislead consumers into the actual environmental impact that the food purchases and consumptions that they make are having on the environment. Now, the EU is trying to clear up the labelling confusion, but there's disagreement between the 27 member countries about how to do it. Eric Gao is from EFOAM Europe, an organisation that represents organic food and farming operators. He says there needs to be an open debate about eco-scoring, assessing the carbon footprint, as some current approaches can be misleading. It gives good scores to fruit and vegetables and bad scores to meat product, but it doesn't make any difference between, let's say, an organic apple or an apple treated with 30 different toxic uh, pesticides. Some European companies are developing their own eco-scoring systems for food. One is Belgium's biggest grocery store, Colwright. Virla Popper, the chain's sustainability strategist, says they stock local produce where possible, but that doesn't mean it has a lower eco-score. And I think that is something that is perhaps a bit difficult to understand for consumers, that packaging and transport do not always have such a big impact compared to the farming phase, but also to the end-use phase. At Wageningen University in the Netherlands, Dr. Kuhn Boner has carried out research for the EU on the best approach. He suggests... An overall figure, taking all the different impacts into account, so greenhouse gas emission, water use, pollution, all those things integrated into one score. He says the eco-score should be colour-coded and rated A to E, so consumers can immediately see if a product is sustainable or not. Emma Calvert from the European Consumer Organization says making it similar to nutrition labels will help people to understand. You can see how much of each key ingredient is actually in the product. That transparency element is really missing for sustainability labels because it's not very easy for consumers, obviously, uh, to first of all understand the different impacts of the food that they buy, but also to then be able to check that information. It's very difficult. She says until there's a harmonised eco-label for food across the European Union, shoppers won't truly know what they're buying. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne, Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, some box office results from the holiday weekend. The big winner was The Color Purple, what Variety magazine calls a vibrant adaptation of the book-turned-beloved-movie-turned-hit Broadway musical. Showing on more than 3,000 screens in North America, the musical pulled in $18 million this weekend. It had the biggest Christmas Day opening since 2009 and the second biggest Christmas Day opening for a movie ever. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Dylan Mietinen, Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfus, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesca Levy is the Executive Director of Digital and On-Demand, and I'm Kimberly Adams. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is APM.